Well, please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. The book of Romans is uh, structured, well, our catechism, I should say, is structured in the same way that the book of Romans is structured. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. And these verses conclude the guilt section of the book of Romans. In chapters 1, chapters 2, and in the first half of chapter 3, Paul is seeking to establish how all people, Jews and Gentiles, stand condemned by virtue of God's law, which is revealed both especially in, in, in the Torah and in the written law of God, and also naturally as the law is written upon our hearts by virtue of creation. So Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. Please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word to us. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Well, please also turn in your Bibles to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. John chapter 15 comes... In the context of Jesus' upper room discourse, uh, the evening before he will die and go to the, or go to the cross and die, he teaches uh, his disciples a number of things. And here in this passage, he's giving his disciples a very helpful image to think about their relationship with him. Christ is the vine and his church are the branches. So John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it, be, it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me. And I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, please take out your order of worship at this time and turn to the confessional reading element. 
This morning, we are confessing together Lord's Day 24, which consists of question and answers 62 through 64. As always, I will read the question if you'd please respond by reciting the answer. Question 62 asks, why can't our good works be our righteousness before God or at least part of our righteousness? Because the righteousness which can pass God's judgment must be entirely perfect and must in every way measure up to the divine law. But even our best works in this life are all imperfect and stained with sin. Question 63 asks, How can our good, good works be said to merit nothing when God promises to reward them in this life and the next? This reward is not merited. It is a gift of grace. Question 64 asks, But doesn't this teaching make people indifferent and wicked? No, it is impossible for those grafted into Christ Jesus not to produce fruits of gratitude. Well, boys and girls, as a means of review, uh, what are the, the three sections that of, the, of our catechism and what section are we currently considering? Marcus. Grace, very good. And What's the definition of faith, according to the catechism? Annabelle? What's the content of faith? Violet? Apostles' Creed. All right, now based on last week, what is the benefit of faith? What happens when we believe? Noel? Anyone help her out? What's the benefit? What happens when we believe? Adults? What happens? What's, what's, what are some of the benefits? We're made righteous. We're made righteous. We're justified. So think about this great section, how central, how central faith has played as a theme. The great section began with this statement about how Christ is the God-man who was perfectly able to satisfy the Father's wrath for our sins. And thus we are to respond with faith. Faith that is, includes knowledge, assent, and trust that has as, as its content the, the basics of the Apostles' Creed. Last week then in question 59 we asked, well, what does it help us that we believe all this? What's the point of professing true faith? That we might be righteous in Christ and heirs of everlasting life. The main benefit of professing true faith is being declared justified before the holy God of the universe. Now today, in this Lord's Day, we are considering a number of, obje a number of objections that are posited against this doctrine of justification by faith alone. Essentially, the catechism is saying, so you're... So you're saying that you are justified by faith alone, out of sheer grace, without any merit of your own. Well, how would you respond to this or this or this? It's, it's, it's responding to a number of objections that were present in the Reformation period. But as we'll see, these are objections that did, have not gone away. 
These are objections that we still face as those who claim to profess belief in this glorious doctrine of justification by faith alone. Now in question and answer 62, we read this question. Why can't our good works be our righteousness before God or at least a part of our righteousness? So remember what we confess in question and answer 60. Our righteousness is not is not ours in the sense that it's not our own intrinsic righteousness. Our righteousness in justification is Christ's righteousness, which is imputed or credited to us. And the catechism asks, well, why? Why can't your righteousness, your intrinsic morality, be part of the equation of justification? Why? Now, of course, in the historical context, the catechism is responding to the Roman Catholic Church, which professed to believe in their own counter-reformation, which was codified in the Council of Trent, that justification is a process. It's not a declaration or an act. It's a process by which we intrinsically need to be declared righteous. Now, of course, this, this won't happen for most of us. 99% of, of Christians, this will not happen uh, for in this life which is why there's purgatory. Purgatory is a place where we can go if we still are unrighteous and we're able to then uh, have our, our sins burned off. The dross of our sin is burned off so that hopefully one day after many, many years, even thousands of years, we might be declared righteous intrinsically. Right? This isn't Christ's righteousness. This is my righteousness that's being declared to be worthy of God. Now, of course, this catechism is denouncing that, that view. However, there's also another view that this catechism is rejecting. And this, this view, at times, is put forward in certain Protestant circles. In fact, this is a view that's put forward even in our contemporary age by, by theologians and, and pastors. It's a bit more subtle than what Rome confesses to believe. Now, in theology, there's, there's been a distinction that's made that's helpful when it comes to analyzing certain doctrines, and this distinction is the already-not-yet distinction. So when you think about our union with Christ, Paul speaks many places about how we are united to Christ. By faith, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are, we are united to Christ. Well, that has already happened for those of us who profess faith, in our regeneration when we were born again. But we are looking forward to the fulfillment of a not yet, when we will be physically with Christ. Christ in this age is physically absent from us. There's a day coming when our union with Christ will be consummated, when we are seated with Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so when it comes to union with Christ, there's an already aspect. We are in Christ, but yet we're looking forward to that full consummation of our union. Well, there are some in Protestant circles who, who seek to apply this distinction to the doctrine of justification. So that there's a sense in which we are already justified when we profess faith. And this already justification is by faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. 
However, there is a not yet aspect of the doctrine of justification, which will happen on the last day when Christ comes to judge the living and the dead. And the not yet aspect of our justification will include not only our faith, but also our sanctified good works. Thus, in order to pass that, that final justification, that not yet aspect of justification, we need not only faith, but we also need a certain amount of sanctified good works. Which, if you step back for a moment, part of our righteousness is needed then in the full equation of justification. Now notice what the catechism is saying. It's completely rejecting a subtle Rome's view, but, but also any other subtle form of, uh, that tries to include our righteousness into the equation of justification. Now that view that I, I re previously explained might seem in the weeds a bit, a little complex, but when that, is the, the, when that view is the, 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 the roots of a teaching or preaching ministry in a local church, it has massive ramifications on the assurance of God's people. When our righteousness is, is put into the equation of what it means to be fully justified, that has massive implications upon the assurance of God's people. But again, let's recall to mind what our catechism says. Why? Why is it that, that, that our righteousness can never factor in to our justification? Why? Well, we read that it's because the righteousness which can pass God's judgment must be entirely perfect and in every way measure up to the divine law. But even our best works in this life are all imperfect and stained with sin. The scene that's being depicted here is like that of a, a legal forensic court scene. What we read is that if we have any hope of passing God's divine judgment, it's either perfection or condemnation. There's no sense of God grading on a curve. There's no sense of God looking at our best efforts and saying, oh yeah, that's good enough. Perfection or condemnation? Our righteousness needs to be perfectly conformable to the divine law. The catechism then finishes with that phrase that even our best works in this life are tainted and imperfect or stained, stained with sin and imperfect. We have to remember that even as regenerate Christians, Every thought that we think, every feeling we have, every action we commit, even our most holy thoughts and actions are still stained with sin. If you're measuring yourself in light of God's perfect and holy standard, we fall far, far short of perfection, even on our best days, even, even though we do possess the Holy Spirit. And boys and girls, I've I think I gave you this illustration before, but imagine you're playing outside in the mud, bare feet. You walk inside the house, and you don't clean off your feet. 
What's going to happen? You're going to leave a trail. You're going to, your parents are going to know exactly where you've been. So it is with, with us as sinners. Every, everything that we do leaves the trail of sin, is marked with sin, is stained with sin. Therefore, we can never trust, even in part, our righteousness for our acceptance before God. Now, let me draw your attention to to Romans chapter 3, which we read earlier. Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. Notice that Paul says, "Now Now that we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. For those of us who are sinners, works of the law can never be included into that equation for justification. If they are, then we know what the sentence is going to be. It's going to be condemnation, not justification. This is essentially the law-gospel distinction. So the law, as Paul says here, condemns us. Notice how Paul says that we are all under the law, either as we hear it audibly or in written form, or through creation as we have the law written upon our hearts. We are all under the law, and thus the law is meant to stop every mouth, meaning it's meant to humble us. There's no one who can boast of their righteousness before God's holy and divine standard. It's meant to stop every mouth so that we all might be held accountable to God's judgment. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. The law condemns. It crushes us who are sinners, which includes all of us. Now, the gospel is a wholly different message. The gospel announces, as we saw last week from question answer 60, it announces what Jesus has done out of sheer grace, without any merit of our own, and how God now grants and credits to us that perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. That is the ground of our assurance. The ground of our assurance does not come from our sanctified good works in this life, from our, even our experience of faith. It comes from what Christ has done objectively in history, which has been imputed and credited to our account. Well, you'll notice that question answer 63, which we won't spend a lot of time on, puts forward another objection. And here, this question and answer speaks to this idea of how there are places in Scripture that seems to speak, that seem to speak to God rewarding our good works. Therefore, does the, the presence of the, this idea of reward mean that we can somehow merit something before God? Well, we've already considered that when it comes to eternal life or heaven, it's impossible to merit heaven or eternal life before God. But what about treasures in heaven? Jesus speaks about treasures in heaven, uh, not, not just the possession of heaven, but treasures in heaven. What about the, the, the blessings of the, the Holy Spirit, joy, comfort, and peace? 
What's the connection between those blessings and our, and our good works in this life? You'll notice that the Catechism unequivocally says that whatever blessings we receive in this life, they come not of merit, but of grace. What is grace? Well, grace is inherently undeserved and unexpected, or those things that are undeserved and unexpected. Now, I love Calvin's quote on this, this issue. He says, Punishment is our due, and when the reward shall come, God shall crown his own gifts, not your merits. So when God, in his good pleasure, seems to crown uh, or blesses us, it's God crowning the good works that he has foreordained and manifested in his life. But we can never say that we have earned those and God now owes us based on our righteous performance this past week. We are never in this transactional relationship to God where we do one thing and God therefore owes us this reward or blessing. Then the reward would not be of grace. God crowns his own gifts according to his good and gracious good pleasure. Well, question answer 64, which uh, now touches upon John 15, which we read earlier. This puts forward another objection. If we really believe that we are justified by faith alone, grace alone, and Christ alone, then why in the world would people be motivated to obey? This was an objection the Reformation dealt with that came from, from, from the Roman Catholic Church and their counter-Reformation. If you tell people that out of sheer grace, without any merit of their own, they are justified and made holy in the presence of God, what incentive are you giving them to obey? This is going to lead to utter immorality in the churches. Now, we have to acknowledge that, you know, much of our life is governed by the law and not the gospel. Or you can say it's, it's a, much of our life is governed by a covenant of works rather than a covenant of grace. Think about the many areas of your life in which you're incentivized to work hard for the hope of a reward. This is one of the principles that capitalism is predicated upon. Think about your work and your vocation. You're inherently incentivized to work hard and do your duty so that you're not cursed and conversely so that you're blessed. Think about school. You're incentivized to work hard so that you can pass the test, pass the class, pass the grade. Think about the natural law wisdom that we hear about in Proverbs. Proverbs commends us to notice how life generally doesn't go well for the, the drunkard and the sluggard. And conversely, life seems to go a bit better for the, the person who observes the work ethic of the end. Now we have to here again recognize that the gospel is of a different species than the law. The gospel doesn't say do this and live. It says live and do this. It says you are accepted and now live in this way. The law can motivate external obedience. That's true. And we see that manifest in so many areas of our life. 
But the law cannot motivate true internal obedience before God that's pleasing in his sight, ultimately. Only the gospel can motivate that kind of obedience. The law motivates really self-centered obedience before God, where our Belgic Confession says, because the law motivates obedience that, that um, is done out of a fear of condemnation, which really is quite self-centered. It's not done ultimately for the glory of God. The gospel is what motivates true internal obedience that's acceptable before God, that's pleasing to him. And thus the gospel is really the motivation for the Christian life in particular. We have to remember that the gospel not only justifies it, not only saves, but it also sanctifies us. The gospel is what sanctifies us. Look with me at question answer 64. But doesn't this teaching make people indifferent and wicked? No, it is impossible for those grafted into Christ by true faith not to produce fruits of gratitude. Now recall what we confessed earlier in the catechism in question answer 8. Are we so depraved that we're totally unable to do any good and prone always to all evil? Yes unless we're born again by the Spirit of God. Meaning, it's just as, just as it's impossible for an unregenerate person who has not tasted the, the power of the Holy Spirit to do anything that's ultimately good and pleasing in God's sight, so too it's impossible for those who are born again and have tasted the power of the Holy Spirit not to produce fruits of gratitude. Yes, these fruits will be imperfect, stained with sin, and fall far, far short of perfection, but they're fruits nonetheless. Remember what we read in John 15. Jesus says that as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, think of Philippians chapter 6 when Paul says, I'm sure of this. I'm convinced of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of, uh, at the day of Christ Jesus. This is meant to be encouraging for us. Now, the catechism later on will devote a whole question and answer to motivations for obedience. So here it's just whetting our appetite. But this is meant to be encouraging. That God has no unfinished projects in his workshop. If you're, you are in his workshop if you profess true faith. And God has no unfinished projects. So think about the current struggles that you are dealing with right now. And we all have them. We all are aware of them. The promise that God's word gives us here is that God is going to continue to be at work in you in that particular area. Talk about good news. And one theologian says that God is just as active in our justification or in our sanctification as he is in our justification. It's something we might not always think about. God is the author of our sanctification. 
Now, what this doctrine is, is calling us to do is it's calling us to trust. Trust Christ's work through his Holy Spirit in our sanctification. It's speaking to our posture of heart. Now, this, this, uh, we can think about this both personally and relationally. So think about this personally. This doctrine is not meant to lead to passivity or laziness in the Christian life. We are called to be active in our pursuit of good works. However, what this doctrine is, is teaching us is it's, it's speaking to the posture of our heart when we are pursuing those good works. So when you are pursuing a life of love for God and for your neighbor, are you fundamentally trusting in your own willpower? Or are you trusting in Christ's work in your life through, through his Holy Spirit? It's speaking to the posture of our heart. And, and what would it look like? What would it look like to pursue that life of love, trusting in your own willpower? And what would it look like to pursue that life of love, trusting and resting in this promise that's given to us? What would be the difference? These are the types of things that we have to wrestle with. We're called to trust and rest in God as the author of our sanctification. And we also can think about this relationally. Uh, think about your own relationships in, in your life currently. We all probably have individuals in our life whom we often grow impatient with because they continue to sin in the same way over and over again. You might think of your marriage, those particular sins that continue to annoy you. You can think of it in uh, parents as you're parenting your kids or with other friends or family. We oftentimes can grow impatient when we see the same sins being presented over and over again. Now, when you address that person in that relationship, what would it look like to address that person when you're trusting in your power to change that person? If you're trusting in your power to change that person, how is that going to influence your interaction? If you're trusting in the other person's willpower to change themselves, how will that change your interaction with that person? But if you're trusting in Christ's power through his Holy Spirit to change not only them but you, how would that change your interaction with that person and your relationship at large? We are called here to trust, to rest in this promise of Christ's power to continue to sanctify us and other members of, of the body of Christ. This is good news. Well, next week, uh, the catechism will continue on this theme of faith. So last week, we looked at the benefit of faith, which is justification by faith alone. This week, we consider a number of objections to this doctrine. And then next week, we will consider how this faith is created within us and nurtured within us, which uh, will lead us to uh, the means of grace. So let us pray.